On April 8, 1990, the two-hour pilot of Mark Frost and David Lynch's surrealist, genre-defying show Twin Peaks aired on ABC. Part detective program, part soap opera, part melodrama, part paranormal fantasy, Twin Peaks was initially marketed as a television program that challenged the accepted conventions and limitations of the medium. It was art at a time when television hardly ever aspired to be more than just mere entertainment. When Twin Peaks premiered, I was in my first year of high school, and largely as a result of the marketing campaign that described the show as unlike anything that had ever aired on television before and an unprecedented artistic achievement, I was excited. I bought into the hype hook, line, and sinker. It was probably the first time I became aware of the name David Lynch. I hadn't really gotten into film yet, and Lynch's name didn't mean anything to me. In the subsequent years, Lynch has loomed large. Few directors have captured my imagination like the works of David Lynch. But it all started one Sunday night in April 1990. Twin Peaks easily outdazzles all the new the network first, shows. The first, you really can't miss this show of the night. Something of a miracle. It is like nothing else on television. A breakthrough. Be there. A, a plus. Tale of sex, violence, the first and TV junk masterpiece of the night. Like nothing on earth. Twin Peaks, Sunday. When was the last time you heard about a TV show like this? TV has never seen a small town like Twin Peaks. Or this. It is like nothing else on television. Or this. Unprecedented, this you've got to see. Police, open up. The answer is never. Because you've never seen TV like this. Don't move. Twin Peaks. Sunday on ABC. Coming Sunday, April 8th. She's dead. Wrapped in plastic. 11.30 a.m., February 24th. Entering the town of Twin Peaks. The Los Angeles Times says Twin Peaks is certainly like nothing else on television. W.C. Fields would say it'd rather be here than Philadelphia. The Washington Post calls it unprecedented. This you gotta see. Bobby, did you kill Laura Palmer? Sunday, April 8th, from David Lynch, Twin Peaks. So I, along with a staggering 33% of the total television audience that night, tuned into a show that quickly became a cult phenomenon. That pilot, which was the most watched TV movie of 1989-1990 season, went on to be nominated for six awards at the 1990 Emmys, including Outstanding Directing in a Drama Series for David Lynch, Outstanding Lead Actor in a Drama Series for Kyle McLaughlin, 
and outstanding writing in a drama series for Mark Frost and Lynch. For that landmark first season, the show was nominated for a total of 14 Emmy Awards. TV critics praised the show's look and cinematic style, some claiming that the show would change forever the way television was perceived. Others, like media analyst and advertising executive Paul Schumann, dismissed the show for its overly demanding narrative and lack of commercial appeal. Quote, I don't think it has a chance of succeeding. It's not commercial. It's radically different from what we as viewers are accustomed to seeing. There's no one to root for. I don't know what show he was watching. I found plenty of people to root for. Despite the voices that heralded the show as the bringing of a new cultural age for television, a new artistic age for television, Mark Frost was skeptical about the show's ability to change the entire television industry. I don't think any of the effects will be very long-lasting. I think that's a pretty elastic envelope, you know, it uh, snapped back pretty quick. And uh, it was funny, one of the, the questions that I was most frequently asked when the show was sort of in its ascendancy was, well, this means that everything's different, doesn't it? I mean, television's going to be just this wonderful cornucopia of, of uh, incredible variety and richness now. And I said, no, it's going to be exactly the way it was. Because it's not there um, to really be creative in its, in its express form, it's there to sell advertising time. Um, and it's run by people who want a cut-and-dried bottom-line business. Twin Peaks spawned book tie-ins, including the New York Times best-selling The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, written by Lynch's daughter Jennifer, a feature film prequel of sorts, Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me, and 25 years later, a highly regarded return on the premier cable channel Showtime, a show which Sight and & Sound and Calle de Cinema named the second best and best film of the year respectively, not television show, film. The first two episodes of Twin Peaks The Return premiered at the Cannes International Film Festival. In 1990, the Twin Peaks cast appeared on talk shows and variety shows. The show's offbeat sense of humor became part of the established cultural landscape. References to coffee and damn good cherry pie are still used to this day. The show established a sort of visual iconography for weird dream sequences that's been parodied and homaged on everything from Saturday Night Live and The Simpsons to Psych. I'm not following you. And although the show's second season saw a sharp decline in ratings, in part due to the network's interference and moving the show to Saturday night time slot, Twin Peaks developed a passionate fan base, one that kept the show in the public consciousness for all these years. But why did the show have this kind of impact on me and on others? What was going on in 1990 that made Twin Peaks stand out? You can't touch this. You can't touch this. So what was 1990 like in terms of culture, in terms of television and movies and music? What were people watching and what were they listening to? Well, the top five Billboard year-end hot singles were indeed Hot Hot Hot. Dance with him. It is serious. Dance with him. Madonna posed her way to number one with Vogue, starting a dance craze for people with limited hand-eye coordination. Belle Biv DeVoe secured number four with Poison. 
Number three was the haunting cover of a Prince song, Nothing Compares to You by Sinead O'Connor. Number two, Swedish pop duo Roxette with Must Have Been Love from the Pretty Woman soundtrack. And Wilson Phillips had the number one song of the year with the ridiculously catchy Hold On. And people were lining up at their local cineplexes, cineplex I, cineplexes, to see the top five films of 1990. Cowabunga at number five, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Julia Roberts explored the whimsical side of sex trafficking in Pretty Woman, the fourth highest grossing film of 1990. Kevin Costner's white savior epic Dances with Wolves came in at number three. And at number two, the film that made pottery sexy, Ghost. And at number one, the film that showed how hilarious child abandonment can be, Home Alone. When it came to television, traditional half-hour situational comedies ruled the airwaves and dominated the Nielsen ratings. YouTube before there was YouTube, America's Funniest Home Videos, came in at number five. The university-focused comedy A Different World was number four. Everybody knows the name of number three, Cheers! And the top spot was shared by two completely unproblematic comedies headlined with completely unproblematic stars, The Cosby Show and Roseanne. Other shows that debuted in the 1989-1990 season were a mixture of familiar formulas and overt appeals to a younger demographic. The Bradys, the weird hour-long drama about the Brady kids all grown up, Wings, Law & Order started, Cop Rock, Beverly Hills 90210, and In Living Color. But more than just the types of shows, television itself was a very different landscape than the one we know today. In this current era of premier cable and streaming services like Netflix and Prime producing high-quality, high-budget television, it's hard to recall a time when nearly all television content was created for and by three networks. NBC, CBS, and ABC. The Fox network, which launched in 1986 as an alternative competitor to the three major networks, was only starting to make an impact. In 1990, the year Twin Peaks premiered, Fox had its first show to break the top 30 shows in the Nielsen ratings. A forgettable little show. HBO, the longest-running and best-known premier cable channel, began operating in 1973, but even by 1990, they had not yet established their reputation of original, high-quality, industry-changing episodic programming. It would be seven years before Oz, nine years until The Sopranos, and 12 years until The Wire. They had a few well-regarded comedies, not necessarily the news, and Kids in the Hall, and a couple of anthology series that exploited the cable system's lack of restrictions on nudity, violence, and profanity. Tales from the Crypt and The Hitchhiker. At the time, television was clearly demarcated as lesser than movies. There were television people and there were movie people. Television stars typically aspired to and sometimes made it into work in the movies. But movie stars who accepted work in television, other than an occasional guest spot or an appearance on a variety show, were almost always viewed as taking a step down. Most television shows at the time, whether situational comedies, legal dramas, or police dramas, were intentionally formulaic, designed to bring audiences in in order to sell advertising time. In describing the limitations of writing for television in those years, Mark Frost talks about writing for the Six Million Dollar Man. You know, every 10 minutes he had to 
lift something heavy, he had to run fast, he had to jump over something. Um, he had to, I think he had an X-ray eye or some or telescopic vision. So it was a comic book. I mean, you had, you had to obey the conventions of the genre. Um, it, it really wasn't, you know, a place to do Desire Under the Elms. I mean, and you, you know, you, you accepted that. That's the, the strange thing about television, because it is such a mercantile business, and um, you are generally very limited by, by the, the boundaries of the show that have been established. So you either make your peace with that, and um, you can, it's a, been described as a terrible way to make a wonderful living, or you don't, or you, or you walk away, and I walked away after a year. I, I left California. Full seasons of network shows consisted of between 20 and 24 episodes. Major plot lines usually resolved by the end of each episode, aside from the occasional two-parter. While VCRs had made taping shows possible, networks couldn't expect audiences to tune in every single week and follow large, multi-episode narrative arcs. Audiences, the networks thought, needed to be able to follow along, even if they missed a few episodes. Even the most famous long-term mystery arc, Dallas's Who Shot J.R. storyline, which was the season three cliffhanger finale, was resolved by the fourth episode of the fourth season. With Twin Peaks, we didn't learn who killed Laura Palmer, the mystery that began the series, until the ninth episode of the second series. And, according to Frost, that was because the network was pushing them to resolve that storyline. People have this misperception that Twin Peaks' eight-episode first season resolves the mystery, and that the 22-episode second season goes off the rails with a number of forgettable plot lines, like Billy Zane and his monstrous sweater. However, the Laura and Bob storyline take up the first third of the second season, and while the second season does have some weird storylines, Many of the most iconic Twin Peaks elements, like the White and Black Lodge, are introduced in that final two-thirds of the season. When David Lynch and Mark Frost first met, they were already established in their respective careers. Lynch had his cult reputation firmly in place from his debut film Eraserhead, and had been nominated for his first Academy Award for directing The Elephant Man. His next nomination would come from Blue Velvet, a film he had just completed when he and Mark met. Mark Frost was an experienced television writer and producer, having worked on the critically acclaimed police procedural Hill Street Blues. Frost recalls having watched Eraserhead and knowing, almost intuitively, that one day he would work with Lynch, something he only admitted to Lynch 25 years into their friendship. Their mutual agent thought they would hit it off and suggested they meet. Yeah, it was an agent at CAA who represented both of us who said, I think you guys would like each other, and why don't you have coffee? Um, David remembers it being at one restaurant, I remember it being at another. Um, I think I'm pretty sure I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> so we met in 85, 86. Uh, he had just made Blue Velvet and hadn't come out yet. I was just, had just made this movie, The Believers, with John Schlesinger, which was the first movie that I'd written and, and helped produce. And uh, we really hit it off, and we, um, we wrote after we were both sort of free, started kicking around screenplays. The first few projects that Lynch and Frost worked on were feature film scripts. The first was an adaptation of Anthony Summers' Goddess, The Secret Lives of Marilyn Monroe, which explored the mysterious circumstances around Monroe's death. 
The project went nowhere, but some have speculated that some of the ideas they were considering were worked into the mysterious death of Laura Palmer. The next project, which was six weeks from production when producer Dino De Laurentiis filed for bankruptcy, was an identity-switching sci-fi comedy that was to have starred Steve Martin and Martin Short, called One Saliva Bubble. Uh, and the whole, it was about a whole group of people who happened to be at an airport in a town in Kansas when they're hit by a ray from a satellite in space that hits the very baggage carousel, turns around, and causes everyone in the room to switch identities. <laughs> this was before big, it was before any of those kind of identity switching. So we had things like a, there was a troop of Chinese acrobats and a group of Texas oil men. Cut <laughs> um, later in the movie to the appearance by the Chinese acrobats and you screen opens and it's 25 guys in cowboy boots and big belt buckles trying to form a human pyramid. It's <laughs> jokes like that. Uh, and Steve Martin and Martin Short were the, were the leads and uh, we were six weeks away from production and Dino uh, revealed to David and to the world that he was bankrupt and uh, the company went away and so did the movie. The next attempted collaboration was a television proposal. It was about a murder in a small town, and the seemingly quaint residents of that town, and the secrets that are eventually revealed about them. The show was originally called North Dakota, but the location was eventually switched to the Pacific Northwest, and the name changed. First, Northwest Passage, and then Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks built on thematic elements David Lynch had explored in his film Blue Velvet. The darkness beneath the seemingly perfect small town life. In describing his own childhood, Lynch has said, My childhood was elegant homes, tree-lined streets, the milkman, building backyard forts, droning airplanes, blue skies, picket fences, green grass, cherry trees, middle America as it's supposed to be. But on the cherry tree, there's this pitch oozing out some black, some yellow, and millions of red ants crawling out all over it. I discovered that if one looks a little closer at this beautiful world, there are always red ants underneath. We had been talking for some time about um, doing a television show together during the writer's strike of 1988 when we had little else to do. Um, we started talking about a little town in the Northwest that um, had a mystery around it that had um, a murder that took place that took us into the town and started to lead us through a kind of labyrinth of secrets and, and mysteries that uh, lay underneath the surface of it. We had an agent, um, a mutual agent, Tony Krantz, who insisted that we take this idea to ABC. And I think we went into ABC's offices at exactly the right moment. Even when making the pilot, many of the cast and crew doubted ABC's willingness to take a chance on this quirky show. In a conversation with Katie Couric in 2014, Kyle McLaughlin recalled their skepticism. When, we, when I joined up with David Lynch and, and they were going to make this, what we thought was going to be a movie of the week, really, the ABC would never have the guts to buy all, you know, all the episodes. We expected it to be a one-off and then that was going to be it. So everyone's sort of laughing, ah, like we're making a pie. No, we're making a movie of the week. It'll never get picked up. Despite Lynch's and Frost's credibility, the success of Twin Peaks was not a sure thing. The network's focus groups predicted the show would be a failure, too different, 
too demanding, too surreal. But eventually, they agreed. A significant part of the cast, an unusually large cast for television in the 1990s, was made up of people Lynch had worked with before. Jack Nance's Pete Martell had met Lynch in the 1970s and had starred in Lynch's first feature film, Eraserhead. That's him on the cover. Catherine Coulson, who was the log lady, was Nance's ex-wife and had worked both behind the scenes of several Lynch projects and had appeared in at least one short film. Kyle McLaughlin, Special Agent Dale Cooper, had starred in Lynch's Dune and Blue Velvet. Everett McGill as Big Ed Hurley had also appeared in Dune. Michael Horse, who played Deputy Hawk, had appeared in Lynch's 1988 short film, The Cowboy and the Frenchman. They also cast established actors from film and television. Russ Tamblin and Richard Beyer, Dr. Jacoby and Benjamin Horn, respectively, had both starred in the film version of West Side Story. Academy Award-nominated actor Piper Laurie as the cunning Catherine Martell, Peggy Lipton from the cult hit The Mod Squad as Norma, Sherilyn Fenn as Audrey Horn, Ray Weiss as Leland Palmer, and Michael Oakin as Harry S. Truman. And finally, they added a host of newcomers with limited resumes. Machen Amick and Dana Ashbrook as Shelley and Bobby, James Marshall as James Hurley, Laura Flynn Boyle as Donna Hayward, and Cheryl Lee, who was just an extra, as Laura Palmer. They filled out the cast and crew with assorted people with backgrounds and connections to Lynch and Frost. Frost's friend, Robert Engels, was brought in as a writer, producer, and senior story editor. Ross' father, Warren, was cast as Doc Hayward. Harry Goetz, who played the overly emotional deputy Andy Brennan, drove Lynch to a Roy Orbison concert and was cast from there. And most famously, Frank Silva, the maniacal killer Bob, was the show's set dresser before Lynch got the idea to include him in the show. In terms of what Frost and Lynch thought they had that would be appealing to the network and the audience was the hook of the main mystery. Who killed Laura Palmer? And the appeal of the quirky townsfolks of Twin Peaks, with their secrets and hidden lives that would be revealed over the course of the episodes as the mysteries unfold. Shelley's affair with Bobby, Norma and Ed's relationship, Catherine's attempt to wrestle the mill away from her sister-in-law, Josie, Ben Horn's plans for expansion, Andy and Lucy's pregnancy, Nadine's memory loss and superhuman strength. Perhaps more than the question of who killed Laura Palmer, the major mystery of the first season, and at least a third of the second, is who is Laura Palmer? The cocaine-using prom queen with multiple lovers and an almost comical list of extracurricular activities, tutoring Josie Packard in English, respite for Johnny Horner, meals on wheels, how does a girl have time for anything? As Dr. Jacoby notes, Laura had secrets. And around those secrets, she built a fortress. Well, that in my six months with her, I was not able to penetrate, and for which I consider myself an abject failure. Similarly, the question of what exactly is Twin Peaks pervades the series. 
This idyllic town set in the mountains with drug running and prostitution, the double lives, the unusual events. As Sheriff Truman tells the eternally optimistic Agent Dale Cooper, Something very, very strange in these old woods. Call it what you want, uh, a darkness, a presence. It takes many forms, but it's been out there for as long as anyone can remember. And we've always been here to fight it. When I come back to Geek for Lynch, in a couple of months or so, I'm going to look a little bit more closely at the mystery of Laura Palmer and her brutal murder, and the man who arrives in Twin Peaks to solve that murder, Special Agent Dale Cooper, whose enthusiasm for tracking down Laura's killer is matched only by his love of coffee, pie, and the local foliage and fauna. Diane, 11.30 a.m., February 24th. Entering the town of Twin Peaks. It's five miles south of the Canadian border, 12 miles west of the state line. I've never seen so many trees in my life. Thank you for joining me. I'm Mike Boyce. If you like this show, hit subscribe and please consider leaving a five-star review. The more reviews we have, the more we show up in search engines. Somehow, I think it's magic. And tell a friend. Word of mouth is still an effective advertising tool. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at MWBoyce. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at, at Geek4Pod. I'd love to hear from you. For the credits and work cited for this episode, check out my website, michaelwboyce.com slash geek4.